Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new to the channel, we're glad you're here. Right now we're in a series in the life of Solomon called Cracks in the Foundation. The story of his leadership as a king was told to explain why Israel was eventually carried off into exile, and it helps us to examine the foundation of our own lives and deal with the cracks before they spread. Today we look at David's final words to his son. David sat his son down to share some parting words, but as many people have experienced, that's not always possible. Knowing how important words can be, David Eagleman, an assistant professor of neuroscience and psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine, created a service he called the Death Switch. For a modest annual fee, you can have emails sent to people you know after you pass away. Eagleman says it can be anything from computer passwords or a love note to the last word in an argument. It allowed for emails to be scheduled years into the future, so you could send a 50th anniversary note to your spouse and have it arrive long after you've passed away. Or you could confess secrets that you weren't willing to admit in your lifetime. It seems that not enough people were willing to give that much thought to the messages they left behind. Because after nine years of operation, the death switch service was shut down. And now if you want to leave a message to those who will come after you, you have to write it down <laughs> or tell them in person. Now that's probably a good thing. But I like the fact that Death Switch helped people to think about the words they would leave with their loved ones. The reality is that we all leave behind a legacy of words, but often we don't think enough about what we're saying or how we'll influence others. What will people remember about what you said? How will they remember your words? When they ask themselves the question, what would mom or dad say in this situation? What will come to mind? When your closest friends remember your words, what will they think of? Will they be words of wisdom or anger? Will they be words of encouragement or criticism? Will they be words of hope or cynicism? Will they remember how you built them up or brought them down? Today's passage contains some of David's final words to his son Solomon and they're given to us for a reason. The Bible actually contains two distinct summaries of the life of David. The books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, they were written to the generation of Jews who had returned from exile. The stories of David's life, they're, they're told to encourage them with an example of what leadership should look like. They were starting over, they needed a blueprint to follow. The best of David's and Solomon's lives are highlighted in Chronicles. The books of 1st and 2nd Kings are different though. They were written to the exiles in Babylon. They had been conquered and driven from their land and they needed to understand how it had happened and why. The portrayal of David and Solomon there is warts and all. Their failings are shown as warnings of what not to do. And not surprisingly, the second half of David's speech that we'll read while recorded in 1st Kings is missing in Chronicles. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to follow along as I read from 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. If you don't have a Bible, just click on the link for today's passage in the YouTube description below. I'll start reading at 1 Kings 2, 1. 
When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom. But do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace, but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And there is also with you Shimei the son of Gerah the Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. This is the word of God. Now, this passage gives us three principles to guide the impact you leave with your words. The first is this. Tell your children that true strength is in the word. You can tell your children things that are true and helpful. You can pass on words of comfort and love. But your job isn't done until you've taught your children devotion and commitment to the scriptures. Tell your children that truth strength is in the word. Now, when we hear David's opening words to Solomon in verse 2, we think that he's saying something that he's not. He says, be strong and show yourself a man. And we figure that he's urging him to be a warrior like he was. When people say things like that today, they buy a set of dumbbells and sign their kid up for Taekwondo. We think of strength in terms of athletics and academics. David knew that true strength lies elsewhere. And so after telling Solomon to be strong and show himself a man, he says, and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Sounds a little bit like John Stott's final words to his assistant before he died. He just said, do the hard thing. Obedience to God brings blessing, but it's seldom the easy choice. It takes courage and strength. And we need to communicate that. Your child needs to know that the greatest battle they'll face in life isn't with the schoolyard bully or the race to get into the top university. Where their strength will be most tested is in their obedience to the word of God. 
Biblical masculinity isn't about protein shakes or binging on UFC. It's having the courage to honor God in a world where following him takes guts. And in that respect, David's words mirror God's commissioning of Joshua following the death of Moses. In Joshua 1.7, God said, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law. And then in verse 9, he added, Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. He's saying disobedience is cowardly. It takes courage to follow after God. We need to model that kind of strength, and we need to watch our own blind spots as well. Some people come down heavy on the be strong part, and they call their children to obedience without the promise of God's help or his presence. Others give all kinds of assurances that God is with you and you don't need to be frightened, but they never call for obedience to God. In verse 3, David spells out what it means to keep God's charge. He says, Walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. Not only does he not shy away from God's commands, but he's careful to locate them in God's actual words, rather than his own opinions. In fact, as a king, Solomon was required to write out his own copy of the scriptures and have it checked by the priests. So often this is missing in Christian parenting. We want our kids to do the right thing. In fact, we often expect them to do the right thing. But we're not willing to teach them from the scriptures to help them to see why, or to introduce them to the God that helps them to follow after him. I think that's why Paul says what he does in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. That's where he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you expect your child to act Christian, but you're not willing to give them instruction in God's word that'll give them the motivation to do so, you're just inviting their anger and frustration. Give your child God's word. Read it with them. Talk about it. And tell your children that that's where true strength is. And that's where every ounce of their courage is needed. Now, many people actually get this one right. They do a good job of giving their children God's commands. But I love the fact that David doesn't stop there. He points to the promise and hope there is in obedience. Not only is true strength in the word, but true blessing is in the Lord. Our children need to hear that from us. They need to see that we believe that with all of our hearts because they're bombarded with a message that blessing is in your freedom or your sexuality or your body or your success or your popularity. Tell your children that true blessing is in the Lord and show them that you believe it. David does that in verse 3. After calling Solomon to be strong and keep God's commands, he adds, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. David's convinced that the path to true blessing is in following the Lord. He knows his faults. He knows how he's fallen short. But he also knows that any good that there is in his life has come as he's responded to the Lord. 
That's where his hope is. And that's the consistent testimony of Scripture. Obedience isn't just our obligation, it's a path to our blessing. God's word isn't just true, it's also good. Psalm 1 describes the promise in this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's blessing in a life lived in devotion to God and his word. And as we make God's word our delight, God delights us with hope and peace and joy and strength. Do you believe that? If I were to take a recording of your words for a week, (laughs) there would probably be a clear message of where you believe true blessing is. As your children listen to those words, would they conclude that you believe blessing is in a better government or in a promotion at work? or in better health? Would they get the message that blessing is in your family, or your hobbies, or your retirement? Children today are bombarded with false promises of worldly blessing. So if they don't see the conviction in your life and words that blessing is in the Lord, it becomes almost impossible for them to resist. One of the things that I appreciate about David's words in verse 4 is that he's careful to point out to Solomon that there are promises reserved for those who seek them. He doesn't give the impression that the blessings of the Christian life are automatic. Notice a promise from God that he quotes to Solomon in verse 4. If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. There are promises reserved for those who seek the Lord. And we can forfeit God's blessings when we turn from him. Now, the chilling part of the promise is that when the readers of 1 Kings came to these words, there wasn't a king on the throne of Israel. In fact, there wasn't even a throne in Israel anymore. Our children need to know that the stakes are high and God's blessings are precious. And our words can betray the fact that we don't really believe that. We can say things like, what will people say if they see you doing that? (laughs) Or what will the people at church think? Or aren't you ashamed of yourself? When we do that, we send the message that obedience is mostly about avoiding guilt or religious people's disapproval. And those just aren't sufficient motivations for living a life that glorifies God. Show your children the blessing that there is in the Lord. Show them that God is worth pursuing. Now, if this was all that David had said to Solomon, we would applaud the legacy of his words. Solomon would have been well served by his father's parting instructions. But unfortunately, he didn't stop there. And his example warns us to cleanse our words of the sins that corrupt our legacy. His appeals to find strength in the word and blessing in the Lord, they just feel a little hollow because of what he says next. In verse 5 and 6, he asks Solomon to kill his former general, Joab. He says, You also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. 
how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. And therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Now, there's no question that Joab was a ruthless man. And some people have tried to justify David's instructions here, saying he was only thinking of the welfare of the kingdom. But if David was just worried that Joab might be a threat to Solomon's leadership, he would have dealt with him himself and done so legally. Instead, he corrupts his legacy with vengeance and asks his son to bump off his enemy. Besides, although Joab did kill his two rival commanders, the fact is that David called on Joab to murder his own rival and Bathsheba's first husband. What David phrases as a call for justice is really just his own demand for vengeance. But he doesn't stop there. After commanding, commending loyalty to some men who had helped him in a time of need, he says this in verses 8 and 9. And there's also with you Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with a sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Now, Shimei had, in fact, cursed David when Absalom led a rebellion against him. He thought David was being punished for his violent ways. But he had since shown his loyalty to Solomon. He supported Solomon when Adonijah tried to steal the throne. Although David had vowed not to kill Shimei on his deathbed, now he asked his son to do so. And he corrupts his legacy with hypocrisy as he does so. What does a promise not to kill someone mean if you order your son to do it for you? And these final requests are almost worse when they're mixed with charges to keep the way of the Lord because the impression it gives is that revenge and hypocrisy are fair game for the people of God. And did you notice the words that he used when he asked him? In verse 6, when he's talking about Joab, he says, Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. The message is, find some crafty, underhanded way to kill him off without making it look like you're killing one of your dad's rivals. He says something similar about Shimei in verse 9. Do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You're a smart guy, Solomon. You'll know what to do. Just make sure that he meets an early grave. David sounds like a mob boss. And the repetition of the words for wisdom is haunting because we know that the thing Solomon is most famous for is the wisdom that God gave him. But here, with his father corrupting that gift by telling him that wisdom is something you use to get what you want. It's how you cheat in life and get away with it. His father's final words give Solomon a selfish view of God's gifts. And if we're not careful, 
our words and our lives can do something similar to our own children. We can tell them that honoring the Lord is the most important thing. But then we can send the message that money or their success is what we really care about. Our words can undo or at least twist the good things that God wants to do in our children's lives. Do your words need a detox? Are they corrupting the inheritance that you're passing along to your children? Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Our children need to hear words that will build them up. They need words of grace, words that are consistent with God's, God's words, not redefining them in ways that reflect the world's values instead of his. They need to hear that true strength is in the word of God, and they need to be shown how to give their courage to walk in his ways. They need to hear that true blessing is in the Lord, and that following him is not only right, but it's also good. Jesus said that the only way to change our words is to change our heart. He taught that what you say flows from what is in your heart. And so to give our children better words, we need to seek God for the heart renewal that only he can give. As we repent of the ways that we've failed to show courage in obeying the word of God, he transforms us from the inside and our words are changed as a result. We give courage to our children. As we repent of the ways that we've sought blessing outside of the Lord and talked as if following him is a liability. When we do that, he renews us and we're, enabled to, we're, we're able to testify to God's goodness with conviction. And as we repent of the ways that our selfishness and our sin have sent mixed signals to our children, he humbles us and he helps us to walk back some of the damaging messages we've given. There's hope for our words because there's a God who can change us from the inside. And there's hope for our children because there's a Savior whose word is greater than ours. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on our words, we, we see too much of David in ourselves. There are ways in which we have commended your word, commended even your commandments. There are ways that we have tried to point to the blessings that there are in following you. Too often our sin has gotten in the way. Too often we have corrupted the testimony that we have sought to give to you. And so we pray that you would meet us. We don't want to just hide our words and cover them up or clean them up. We pray that you would change us from the inside out. As we repent of the words that misrepresent you. We pray, Father, that you would renew our hearts. Fill us by your word. with pure hearts that would glorify you in 
words of grace and truth. Purify us from the inside that we might speak with conviction. Purify us from the inside that we might point to the one who is the word, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you examine the impact of your words and shown you the hope that there is in the God who can help you change them. If it stirred up questions for you, if you're interested in learning more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. And if you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.